Before I get into what we're going to talk about this morning, I want to uh, add my word to some of the plugs that were made uh, that Jeff was doing earlier. It's been my privilege over the last couple of years uh, to get to know David Helm and Robert Kinney with uh, the Simeon Trust. Uh, I'm one of their national trainers, so I get the privilege of traveling around uh, to places like this. Uh, I was just in Philadelphia earlier this year uh, taking a group of guys through the book of Job. I really want to encourage you to take advantage of what Simeon Trust is doing. Uh, if you can get to one of their local workshops, uh, please do. We host one every year in Portland, and it is one of the highlights of my year uh, as we gather with guys around the Pacific Northwest uh, to dig into God's Word together. It is very much, uh, in, in those workshops, it's very much like spring training, right? You know, every every year... Uh, the, the, the rookie as well as the veteran in a ball club, you know, they, they get together and in spring training, they work on the fundamentals together. Everybody goes out for batting practice. Everybody does their fielding practice. Uh, this is what Simeon Trust is all about. Getting, getting guys that have been preaching for 25, 30 years, getting guys who this is their very first year in the pulpit together to work on the fundamentals and uh, and because of that, what I want to encourage you to do is if there's a workshop that you can get to, just plan on, just write it into your schedule. Go every year. Uh, they, they do a different book every year uh, in, the, in the different workshops, so you're going to move through all the different genres. But eventually they'll cycle around and you'll go through a book you've done before. Doesn't matter. The point is getting together with fellow practitioners to work on the fundamentals. And I think you will find that you let you, you're kind of scared of it the first year if you've not done it because it's a workshop. You're going to have to present your work to others and they're going to give you feedback. That's why guys don't want to come. But after they've been, because, you know, as pastors, sometimes we, we are a little sensitive. Preaching is what we think we do best. Um, and so we're not sure we want to hear feedback. Uh, but then we go. You go to one of these workshops the first time and you realize, man, where has this been all my life? This is what I need. And it's, it's in your second and your third and your fourth year that you go to one of these workshops that you really begin to benefit uh, and see the value of it. Now, the new thing that they're doing are these online courses that, that, they were, uh, that the video was explaining that Jeff and some others here in the area are taking part of. I'm really excited about these. I, I was also privileged to be a part, be, be one of the instructors in both the biblical theology track and in the new systematic theology track. Uh, you've got much better instructors than me uh, in, in these courses. Uh, guys like Don Carson, David Helm, Brian Chappell, uh, re- really top-notch guys. Uh, but then you've also got in these courses practitioners who are taking some of the ideas that, that uh, these top-flight professors have given you and then showing, how do I take those ideas and just work them out in my, in my pastor's study? So uh, let me encourage you to take advantage of that. Uh, it's, it's better than the video uh, made it appear. <laughs> Second quick plug that I want to make is for Nine Marks. Uh, there are a bunch of Nine Marks books on uh, the book table. I hope you'll take advantage of those. But I hope you'll take advantage of the larger ministry of Nine Marks. This is something I've been privileged to be a part of from, uh, from really from its founding, back when we called it Center for Church Reform and realized then we needed to change the name because when pastors got mail from the Center for Church Reform, the church secretary saw that and got scared and, and, and called you know, all the committees and the deacons and said, you know what our pastor is reading? And he would get fired. So we, we, <laughs> so we, we eventually changed the name to Nine Marks, which is much less dangerous sounding. The great thing about Nine Marks is they're not really trying to sell you anything. Uh, they're, not, they're not selling you a technique. They're not selling you a method. There are lots of people out there that will sell you their technique, their brand for growing your church. Um, that, that's not what Nine Marks is about. Nine Marks is really saying nothing original. Uh, j- just trying to highlight what we think the Bible has always said about the church and about pastoral ministry and what it would look like to pursue a ministry in your local church um, that is faithful and really wanting to help you redefine your own measure of success according to the measure of faithfulness uh, rather than, than some number that, that somebody's putting on you. Uh, so we want to equip church leaders with the tools that they need to pursue biblical, healthy local churches uh, for, for the glory of God 
and to, and to the great benefit of the nations. So there are many books that you can take advantage of. And, there, and Jonathan Lehman, my good friend, who's the editor of Nine Marks, he's constantly dreaming up new books to put into your hands that will be helpful for you. But, but one of the great resources that they've got is their, is their webpage. It's really a think tank for the local church. And they're constantly putting out uh, tools and resources on their webpage, ninemarks.org. And there's a wonderful uh, electronic journal that can be delivered right to your, uh, your inbox on, uh, on a bi-monthly basis. It's always looking at great topics of use to you as pastors. It's very easy to sign up for that. Just go to, the, go to the website and sign up for that. So I hope you'll take advantage of that, as well as some of the conferences and workshops that they do uh, around the country. So those are my two plugs for two ministries that are near and dear to my heart and have had a huge impact on me. And I hope they will on you as well. All right, so we want to continue looking this morning uh, at the topic of uh, the atonement. And to get us thinking about that, I want us to think about the season that we are entering in right now. And that's election season, right? Every week, it seems, there's a, a, another candidate throwing their hat in the ring for uh, the presidential election. And I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. What they're, what they're all going to tell you is they're, they're going to start telling you, they're going to start telling us what we need. Right? This is what politicians do. They come along and they tell us what we need. What we really need is more investment in education. What we really need is a stronger military. What we really need is, is greater national unity. And, and what then they're going to try to convince us is that they are the solution to that to that need, right? This is as old as politics. This isn't a new modern problem. In 1907, President Teddy Roosevelt thought that the great need of the country was more government investment in railroads. That made sense. Country's expanding. It's a big country. I've realized that as I've moved from one side of it to the other. The problem of transportation was huge. Moving people and, more importantly, goods across across this country. A century later, President Obama, uh, running for election, what does he say? He says the great need of the hour was was unity. He picked up themes uh, d- directly quoting uh, from speeches by Martin Luther King. It's it's not just our 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 own politicians that that talk about what we need and then begin to offer themselves as as the solution. Uh, that, that, that same year that President Obama, or at the time candidate Obama, was uh, talking about the need for unity, uh, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations was saying that the great need for the world was tolerance. Railroads, a hundred years later, unity, tolerance, times have changed. What about you? This morning, just personally, sitting here, when you stop and think about it, what's your greatest need? What's, what's the problem in your life that needs fixing? What about the people sitting in your pews? What about the people that, that you're reaching out to in your community? I'm sure it's not more investment in the railroads. That's for sure. Most Westerners these days, are going to define their greatest need in material terms. And as much as you would like it to be otherwise, I think that's going to be the way most of the people sitting in your pews are thinking about their their greatest need. They need more money. They need a better job. They they need a a more secure future for themselves or, or for their children. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting, and, and pollsters are beginning to talk about this, uh, so, social commentators and pundits are beginning to think about this. Millennials, it seems, however, are not as consumed with, with money as their Gen X parents and baby boomer grandparents are. Right? Millennials, it seems, uh, think more in terms of a, maybe a psychological or relational frame. What, what they're after, what they feel like they need is a sense of, of personal authenticity, of healthy self-esteem, respect, and wholeness. They, they, they want to 
They, they want to do something with their lives that, that matters, not just make a bunch of money. Now, this is all Western. You move outside of, of the Western context, if, if, if you're not from the West, if you're not defined by Western culture, you're probably going to define your greatest need in entirely different terms, terms that may feel very foreign to us. Uh, you, you might define your greatest need in social rather than individual terms. Your, your need is for respect and security for your family or your clan or even your people. Your need is for the removal of, of shame due to historic injustice. I've been really struck by this. I was mentioning this in, in the, the, uh, the elective with, with Josh, as Josh was talking about shame. Moving out west, I have a number of Native Americans in my congregation. And this is what they talk about. Growing up in America and being taught on the reservation, uh, by sometimes by, by missionaries, to be ashamed of who they were, to be ashamed of their culture, to be ashamed of their language, to be ashamed of their heritage. And, and, and the, the feeling, the need that they have to somehow be, be rescued from that, be, be relieved from that great sense of, of shame due to historical injustices. Many people in the world are going to feel the need for political self-determination, right? When we, when we look at the Arab Spring, what, what's going on in, in the various uh, revolutions that happened across North Africa? A, a desire for political self-determination. For 2,000 years, Christians have had an answer to the, to the question, what is your greatest need? We've had our own answer. It's an answer that, that it sometimes connects with, but oftentimes cuts across the answers that, that we naturally come up with. And, and our answer is that each of us, individually, need to be saved. That's our greatest need. We need to be saved. Saved from our sin and saved from the penalty that those sins have incurred before God. This is what we believe Jesus Christ came to do. He came to save sinners from the wrath of God. And he did it by enduring that wrath himself on the cross. That's part of what we looked at last night. As we looked at Christ's cry of dereliction on the cross. Now, this idea that Christ saves sinners from God's wrath by suffering it himself on the cross in our place... As we saw last night, as I introduced last night, this idea has fallen on hard times. It's long been criticized by those outside of Christianity. It's long been criticized by those inside of Christianity that would associate themselves with, with a, a more liberal understanding of the faith. So the liberal Baptist theologian, Paul Tillich, defined salvation as healing. Healing from the sense of, of existential crisis. For him, the cross was not a penal substitution for us, but an authentic example to us. An example to us of the triumph of faith over the ultimate existential crisis and estrangement of death. In, in liberal Christianity, the cross is a symbol and nothing more. One of the challenges some evangelicals, though, have begun to raise is whether, in fact, we've accurately understood the problem, the, the need that the crucifixion of Christ is meant to address. Steve Chalk and Alan Mann, two guys that I referred to last night, they write, people are desperate for a message that they can buy into that they can see will make a difference to them and to the world in which they live. The truth is that you can't engender a sense of lostness or need into people simply by pointing out that they are sinners. It just doesn't work. Another author has written, a story of atonement 
that orients its, itself purely and simply around the wrath of God for sins committed, absorbed by an innocent Jesus, not only fails to map onto the story of the post-industrialized, sinless self in any meaningful way. That's true, right? That's true. That, that, that story that we tell, that we tell, it does fail to map onto the post-industrialized, sinless self. But this author goes on to say, it also fails to map onto significant chunks of the New Testament. The fact that, that this idea of, of penal substitution fails to map onto our culture's understanding of themselves, that, that sets our challenge, right? There is our evangelistic and, and culturally sensitive and apologetic challenge to, to understand how to speak into a, a culture that's lost any sense of sin. But if it's not even in the Bible, well, then we got a problem. Then we really have a problem. Which is why I'm speaking to you about these things this weekend. I want us to continue to be encouraged as well as challenged about, about what the Bible actually teaches about the atonement. And so this morning, I want us to look at a passage which speaks very directly about Jesus saving people. What do we need saving from and how are we saved from it? These are the questions that our text addresses this morning. So turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And I'm just going to begin, we're looking at, very, I'm not going to look at the whole conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We're just going to look at a very short section of it beginning in verse 14. John chapter 3 verse 14. I'm going to read down to verse 18. John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now this is, per, there, there is perhaps no more beloved or familiar verse in the whole Bible than, than John 3.16. I mean, I, it's, it was the very first you know, verse that I memorized as a kid. I, was, I still remember this. I'm sure that, that might be true for many of you as well. Even folks who didn't grow up in the church know this verse. Uh, or at least they know what they think this verse says. They, they know about this verse. So as, as we come to this passage, it means we're, we're kind of coming to the, like the, the Mona Lisa of the Bible, right? Uh, this is one of the high peaks of Scripture. What could be said about John 3.16 and the verses surrounding it that you haven't already heard, that you don't already know? Well, my purpose... This morning in our session is, is not to reveal some secret, never-before-seen meaning. To tell you that you've always gotten this verse wrong. No, I, I want us to simply walk through this passage and observe what it teaches us about why Jesus was sent from heaven to die on a cross. There are five verses in our passage. There are five things that I, that I think these verses teach us about the atonement that I want us to take away. And, and the first thing that we see is the need, the need for the atonement. Look again with me at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you know the context, right? Jesus and Nicodemus, a religious leader in Israel, they have been discussing about how does somebody get into the kingdom of God? How does somebody get into heaven? And Jesus has insisted earlier in the conversation, that the only way to get in is to be born again. That is to be given new life through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus's response is quite understandable. His response is, that's impossible. How can, how can you be born again? And Jesus' reply, if I can like summarize it, is to basically say, dude, dude you, you should trust me. You, you can believe me because I know, I know, I've I've been there. Heaven is where I'm from. And so I know 
how you get there. And then, and then in our verses here, he goes on to explain why he's left heaven and come to earth. Jesus says there in, in verse 14 that what happened in the desert to the Israelites 1,500 years before must happen to him. Now, he's referring, when, when he talks about the, the snake in the desert being lifted up by Moses, he's referring, of course, to Numbers chapter 21. In, in that chapter, the people of Israel complain and grumble against Moses and against God. Right? There, there's, there's no water. There's, 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 no, there's no bread. And frankly, they're sick and tired of the manna. This, this miraculous food that God is sending them from heaven. You know, it's just, it's not enough that God has rescued them from Egypt. It's, it's not enough that he's supernaturally providing food and water in the wilderness. It, it, it's really incredible, right? As far as they're concerned, it's taking too long to get to the promised land. And the room service along the way just isn't up to snuff. And so they're complaining and, and, and they're grumbling. It's a perfect picture of prideful discontent, of ungrateful, selfish hearts. They were fully convinced that they could do a better job managing their situation than God was doing. And in that, they sound a lot like us, right? I mean, here we are as many of us as Americans, Westerners, living in the wealthiest country the world has ever known, even those of us that are are poor by American standards are rich beyond the wildest dreams of most of the rest of the world. And we are expert complainers. We are expert grumblers. And, and you know, it's not just Christians that understand this. Non-Christians understand this. You, you, know, you know the hashtag, first world problem? Right? Are you all aware of this? This is a really common thing out there. You see it on Twitter. You see it on Facebook. Uh, where, where, where somebody's complaining or grumbling about something. And, and the reply will come back, first world problem. Oh, my, my, my phone's battery life. It's just so short. <laughs> My life is so miserable because I'm always having to recharge my phone. Man, the quality of the coffee in the hotel this morning was just wretched. First world problem, right? That's us. We're, 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 we're just like, we're worse than these Israelites. In the desert. I mean, they were at least in the desert, right? They had something. They they could at least point to their surroundings and say, this is worthy of complaint. We can't even do that. In judgment for their rebellion. In judgment for all of our rebellion. God sent poisonous snakes among them. Numbers tells us that many of them died. This, this, is, this is the penalty for sin from the very beginning. The penalty for sin is death. And they're reminded of it very sharply right there in the desert. Now, now the point of comparison that Jesus is making here is not just what's going to happen to him. We're going to get to that in a moment. But it is this condition that we're all in. We, we have this, this same heart that the Israelites had. God God has placed us in this world that he's made. He's he's provided us with everything. And as a result, he has every right to expect that we're going to respond to him with trust and with thanks and with worship. But we've grumbled. And it's not just that we grumble about first world problems. Our our grumbling, our, our complaining goes a lot deeper than that. Basically, we all decide we want to take charge of our own lives. Some of us don't like what God says about our sexuality. And so we take charge of our sexuality. 
Others of us really don't like the idea of any authority outside of ourselves. I, I, I remember, um, I, I'll never forget, I had just arrived um, in, in Portland. I, I'm like one month into uh, my, this new pastorate, and we get a phone call from the community. It's anonymous. The, the caller doesn't want to identify himself, but, he, but he, he just says, by the way, do you know that your worship leader has moved in with her boyfriend and is living with him? No, I didn't know that, actually. So our pastor of worship goes and talks to the worship leader. And her response, not, oh, no, 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 I'm not. That caller was mistaken. That caller has misunderstood what's going on. No, her response was, are you kidding me? You mean you're going to talk to me about what I'm doing with my private life? If I had known that this is what it was all about, I would never have signed up for Christianity in the first place. She was out of there. We don't accept any authority outside of our own. That's many of us. Oh, still others of us chafe at what God says about our money. And this, this hits very close to home. Right? We, we are wealthy. Some of us are more wealthy than others. But by the world standards, we are wealthy. And God has a lot to say about what we do with our money. Jesus talked about our money way more than he talked about our genitals. Right? Way more than he talked about our sex lives. Because the money, our, our, our money, so, so often it ends up just being an index to our hearts. It, show, it shows what we love. And we don't like that. We don't like it when preachers and God's words start meddling with our, with our finances, with our giving, with the way we're spending on ourselves. I think bottom line, all of us find it rather intolerable that God made us to love him rather than ourselves. We would much prefer a world in which the purpose of our lives was to love ourselves. And by the way, if I can convince you to get you to love me too. Rather than needing to orient my life around loving God. This is is where our, our real complaints come in. This is where our real grumbling begins. Whatever form it takes, we are all guilty of this kind of rebellion against God who made us. And we stand under that judgment. The the snakes, that is to say the evidence of God's wrath, may not have arrived yet. But we should not let the delay fool us. We should especially not let the comforts of this life lull us into a false sense of security. The judgment of God has already begun. It's already begun in our spiritual separation from him. And the day will come when final judgment will be delivered. An eternity spent in conscious torment, not from snakebite, but from the wrath of God himself. Here's, Here's the great need. Here's the great need that every human being stands under. To be saved Not from our poverty. To be saved. Not from our loneliness. To be saved. Not not from our addictions. We need to be saved. From God. We need to be saved. From his wrath. from, From his judgment. That we have justly earned. And so we need an atonement. We need a way in which. We might be forgiven by God. And reconciled to him. We need to be clear as we preach the cross what the need is. If we preach a Christianity in which the the need is a better life, a better marriage, good kids that grow up and turn out all right, what happens 
when Jesus doesn't deliver. And he won't because he didn't promise all those things. He always delivers on what he promised. But he never promised you that your kids were going to turn out okay. He never promised you that you were going to have a happy marriage. He's never once promised you that you're going to have a prosperous, comfortable life. When we sell people a Christianity that says, if you believe in Jesus, you'll get those things. And then he doesn't deliver. Well, they rightly walk away. We want to be clear about what the real need is. The real need is to be saved from God's wrath. And this is a promise that Jesus delivers on. This brings us then to to the second thing that these first two verses teach us. And that is the nature of the atonement. We've looked at the need for atonement. Now the nature of the atonement. In response to God's judgment, the Israelites in the desert asked Moses to, to pray that God would take the snakes away. They knew that they could not remove God's judgment. Only God could deal with God's judgment. So in reply, God tells Moses to make a bronze snake and to lift it up on a pole or or a standard. And anyone who was bitten and then looked at that uplifted bronze serpent would not die, but would live. Why a bronze snake? Well, Numbers doesn't tell us explicitly. The text doesn't actually spell it out for us explicitly. But the logic seems to be the same as every other means of atonement that God provided the Israelites. There's nothing magical about it. God never deals in magic. Like like the Passover lamb or the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the bronze snake was a symbol of Israel's condemnation and judgment. In looking at the snake, The Israelites were very much acknowledging the justice of God's judgment. But they were also depending on the promise that if they looked in humble, repentant faith, they would not die. You understand, this is how all the means of atonement worked. The the, the Passover lamb or or, or the the lamb sacrificed on the the day of atonement. Right? It, It represented the Israelites. It was condemned in their place. In fact, this is the point of placing your hands on the the sacrificial animal before you offered it. By placing your hands on that animal, you're saying, that animal represents me. And therefore, that animal has to die because I deserve to die. A symbol of the judgment that we stand under. Trusting that if we put our hope in the promise that God's made in response to that symbol. We will not die. It dies instead. Well, Jesus goes on to say that just as Moses lifted up that snake, so the son of man must be lifted up. Now, at that point, Jesus is referring to himself. He's referring to himself as the one who was sent from heaven. But what was even more shocking, I think, to Nicodemus. I mean, that, that in and of itself is a shocking statement. Nicodemus, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one sent from heaven. I am the, 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 the messianic son of man, Daniel's son of man, who's come from heaven. As shocking as that was, what was even more shocking is this unambiguous statement that the son of man must be crucified. You say, well, where's the word crucify in this text? Well, it's not there. But, but the verb that he uses to be lifted up, oh, this is what this verb is referring to. To, to, be, to be lifted up is the verb that is always used to be lifted up on the cross. And Jesus is saying, this must happen. The Son of Man must be not exalted, not lifted up in, in glory. That's not what he's referring to here. He, he must be lifted up to die. He doesn't mean that, that some external logic is forcing this on God. He's, he's meaning, when he uses that language of must, he's, he's referring to the fulfillment of Scripture. He's saying, this has been the plan all along. God himself has committed himself prophetically to this plan. As Isaiah said of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. 
he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. According to Jesus, that bronze serpent in the desert was just a picture of the true atonement that would be made when he was lifted up on the cross. Not merely a symbol or emblem of our judgment, but as the actual substitute who would actually suffer our judgment in our stead. Here is the nature of Christ's atonement. He would be lifted up on a cross, condemned as a criminal, in order to suffer the penalty that we deserve in our stead. And he says this must happen. But he also makes it very clear that that he suffers willingly in order to fulfill God's purpose laid out in Scripture. So contrary to what liberal theologians like to say about the, the symbolic meaning of the cross, the good news of the gospel is that there's nothing symbolic about it. The symbols were in the Old Testament. The symbols were, were all there. They were given so that when the real thing actually happened, we'd know what we were looking at. This is why it is so important to read our Bibles with, with biblical theology in mind. We don't want to confuse the symbols with the real thing. We we want to understand how the symbols are pointing forward to the real thing. How they help us understand what the real thing really is. When he was lifted up on the cross, Jesus was not making a symbolic statement. He wasn't making some statement about the the power of faith over the meaninglessness of life. No, Jesus was actually making atonement for sin as only he could do. Jesus is unique. He he is the only one to whom all the shadows, all the pointers, all the symbols were leading to. Fully God and fully man. He alone did not stand under God's judgment. He alone never grumbled against God, never sought his own will over against the Father's. This is why he could offer himself as a substitute. Again, this is where the symbols are pointing. Why did the lamb always have to be blameless? Because they were pointing forward to the blameless son of God. Who would not just be visually perfect, kind of physically without defect. But who would be morally perfect. Without defect of any kind. Without blame of any sort whatsoever. And because Jesus obeyed his father's will, not only was he lifted up to die, not only was he lifted up on the cross, but then God lifted him up and has highly exalted him. Jesus died on the cross, and that's, that's our focus for, for this weekend. But, but we must say he didn't stay dead, did he? No, he got up from the grave and he ascended to heaven. And as Paul declared in Philippians chapter 2, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus was lifted up on the cross, Jesus has been lifted up to heaven. Amen. Amen. Now, there, there's so many things that we can take away from this, just by, just by way of application. H- have you ever noticed the difference between the way the followers of Muhammad and the followers of Jesus react when one or the other is insulted? You must have if you've been paying attention to the news, right? When Muhammad is insulted, Islam says the offender is to be killed By the faithful. And we just saw that on the streets of Paris. Je suis Charlie. Charlie Hebdo. But when Jesus is mocked, what does Scripture teach us to do? When Jesus is mocked, Scripture teaches us to pray. To pray that God would have mercy on the mocker. What accounts for the difference? Do Muslims hold Muhammad in higher esteem than Christians hold Jesus? Not at all. It's simply this. Muhammad, from the very beginning, oppressed 
and slaughtered some of those that resisted his message. And he taught his followers to do the same. But what did Jesus do to those who rejected him? Well, he died for them. Jesus died for his enemies. And he taught us to love our enemies as well. So that we would be like our Father in heaven. I think this might be one of the strongest apologetics for the truth of Christianity. Which religion sounds like it came from heaven? And which religion sounds like it was invented here on earth? Why would God send his beloved son to die for sinners as a substitute in their place? Well, that brings us to the third thing that we see in these verses, and that's the motivation for the atonement. So we've looked at the need. We've looked at the nature, that it's a penal substitution. Now, now why? What's the motivation? Well, that brings us to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. According to Jesus, the motivation for his substitutionary death on the cross is the love of God the Father. Now, so often I think we read this verse as if it's telling us something about the intensity or the quantity of God's love. God loved the world so much. Mm. He loved the world. That he sent his son to die. I mean, we, we kind of we make God out like a, like a lovesick teenager at this point. Right? Just, just head over heels in love. Well, I mean, he does. Right? The, the, the intensity of God's love Knows no bounds. It's just that's not what this verse is talking about. Now, a, a, a more precise translation might be, God loved the world in this way. God loved the world so. God loved the world thusly. You want to know how God loved the world? You, you, you want to know what, what, his, what his love looked like? This is it. The intense love of God, you see, is not just emotion. It has a content. And what an amazing content. How do we know that God loves the world? We we look at the cross. How do we know what God's love looks like? We look at the cross. This is what God's love looks like. On the cross... God gave his son as a sacrifice for a sinful world in full tilt rebellion against him. And the person that God gave for the world wasn't just anybody. It was his one and only son, the second person of the Trinity, whom the father had loved from all eternity with an infinite love and with whom he was well pleased. This is the one he gave. And he did it because of his love for the world. You see what understanding this verse correctly does? It it, it means that it transforms the way we think about love. The world thinks of love as mere sentiment, as as simply an emotion, a, a feeling. But that's not the biblical definition of love. When the Bible says that God is love, this is what it means. An active giving of oneself, of one's very best for the good of another, even for the good of of your enemy. So that confronts us. It, It confronts us with our own understanding of love. How do you measure love? Is it is it by how much you're getting your own way? What you want when you want it? I know I'm loved when the people around me are giving me what I want not a good measure. It's not a good measure at all. Sometimes love opposes what you want. Sometimes love prevents you from getting your own way. And of course, as, I think as parents, we get that, right? We, we, we see that immediately as parents. 
in, in love, I say no to my kids all the time. Now, they're constantly thinking, I think my kids are constantly asking two questions. Do my parents love me? Can I get what I want? Those are their two main questions. And, and kids typically relate those two questions to each other wrongly. I know my parents love me when I get what I want. And, and a big part of parenting is, is teaching them to disconnect those two questions, right? No, no, you can't get what you want. And that's how you know that I love you. We're no different than our kids, right? I mean, if we're honest. So, so often we measure God's love the same way that our kids measure our love. If life is going well, if I'm getting what I want, God loves me. If, if all the people in my church are happy and they think I'm the best preacher they've ever heard, God loves me. Oh, but, but when things aren't going well, when people are angry at me, when, when uh, I don't know, when my church isn't paying me as much as I think they should pay me, or, or, or when, when, you know, Mrs. Jones is chronically angry at me, clearly God doesn't love me. Because if he loved me, people wouldn't be treating me this way. It's a deceitful measure. It's a false measure. Perhaps God is loving you right now as a wise father by not giving you what you want. Even by making your life difficult. So that you'll learn even more what it means to trust him. So that perhaps you'll stop a a headlong descent into destruction and instead cling to him. As Christians, we understand that we are called to imitate this kind of love by by spending our own lives in in sacrifice for others. We we don't love others this way in order to earn God's love. How could could we ever earn the cross? No, No, we love others this way because we ourselves have been loved so well. And so now our, our joy is found not in getting other people to love me, but in, but in spending my life in love for others, in, in displaying that incredible love of God to the world. And I don't do that just by myself. I do that together with, with my church. As our, as our church community is a really a, a means of, of making God's love visible to the world. As we love one another. And so show the world what God's love looks like. So for those of you that are here that are pastors and elders, how will your church see your Christ-like love this week? How are they going to see it? For the married, how... Is your spouse going to see your Christ-like love this week? How about your next-door neighbor? People on your street or, 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 or people uh, in, 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 in your office, in the cubicle next to you or, or down the hall. How are they going to see your Christ-like love this week? You know, the cross didn't happen on a whim. Jesus didn't show up and just kind of going about his life and then all of a sudden, oh, I know, we'll do the cross. No. The cross had been planned from all eternity. Carefully thought out. Happening just at the right time. What kind of planning are you doing to show your love this week to your church, to your spouse? I mean, as Americans, we tend to think that love is only authentic if it's spontaneous. That might be the least biblical way of showing love. I'm not saying it's illegitimate. 
But God spent a long time planning how to love you. How are you planning to love the people around you this week? I think both as churches and as a society, we need to, we need to be super careful about reducing love to sentiment. As pastors, we need to be teaching our churches to, to recalibrate their understanding of love. If, if, if love is merely sentiment, then when it comes time to love in hard ways, your church isn't going to be able to do it. When it, when it comes time to exercise church discipline as an act of love, they won't follow you there. Because if their whole idea of love is love is what makes everybody feel accepted and warm, they will not say hard things. It'll affect the discipleship in your church. If, if love is merely sentiment, well then, first, you're only going to disciple people that you kind of naturally like anyway. And then when you get into that relationship, you're not really ever going to confront one another on sin. Because sentiment doesn't allow it. Sentimental love is poisonous to a church. It's poisonous to a society as well. That's part of what's going on right now. When we reduce love to mere sentiment, well, it, it, it sounds romantic. But it's corrosive and destructive. If love is merely sentiment, then when I don't feel loving, I don't have to love anymore. Sentiment never makes promises. Sentiment never keeps commitments. Sentiment merely describes the present. But if sentiment is all you have, how will you ever maintain a marriage? How will you maintain a family? Honestly, how will you maintain a civil society if love is stripped of its sacrificial action and is merely feeling? Well, time marches on. There's a fourth thing that we need to consider. We've looked at the, the need, the nature, the motivation of the atonement. We need to consider the effect of the atonement. What did Christ's death on the cross accomplish? You know, if the only statement that we had on the matter was John 3.16, we might think that Christ's sacrificial death made salvation possible, but stopped short of actually accomplishing it. But verse 17 will not allow us to draw that conclusion. John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The set purpose of God in sending Christ into the world was not to make salvation possible, much less was it to condemn the world. No, the set purpose of God in sending his son was to actually save the world, and that salvation was accomplished through him. That is to say, through the giving of Christ as this sacrificial substitute lifted up on the cross. We, we need to be clear on this. Our faith does not accomplish our salvation. There's been a lot of teaching, particularly in the American church, that, that Christ came to make salvation possible and our faith seals the deal. Faith doesn't save anyone. Jesus saves. Jesus accomplishes atonement. And, and he does it completely. Without any help from us. Our, our faith doesn't add to his work. Our good works certainly don't add to his work. Viewing Christ as a model for our life, none of that rescues us from God's wrath. No, if anyone is saved, it is through Jesus. Christ's death on the cross is actually effective. It accomplished salvation. And it does that in two ways, both negatively and positively. On the one hand, it endures 
God's condemnation so that we are not condemned. Christ's death exhausts God's wrath so that he's not angry at us anymore. This is what we've been talking about in, in the last session and so far in this one. So, so, that, so that his death actually pays the penalty. Justice is satisfied so we are not punished. As a result of Christ's death on the cross, sinners do not perish. But that's not all. As this verse makes clear. Positively, like the Israelites in the desert who looked at the bronze snake, we are given life. Eternal life. Now, what's eternal life? Well, it's life that doesn't end. That makes sense. But that's not all. That that might not even be the main thing when the Bible talks about eternal life. When the Bible describes life as eternal, yes, it's thinking about duration, But it's not primarily thinking so much about duration as it is thinking about quality or or even the source of that life. Eternal life is the life of the age to come. It's the life of heaven breaking into our lives now. It's a life that is found only in Christ. Not not only will our current life come to an end, but, but while this current life lasts... It's characterized by mortality, by, by weakness and frailty, by, by change and decay. I'm, ap- I'm approaching the age of 50. I'm not quite there yet. Got a, I'm not even next door, but I can see it. I can see it coming. And I, and I feel the frailty, right? I feel the change that's happening. Those of you in your 20s and 30s, don't mock and don't despise me for this. It's your turn's coming, right? Uh, this, this is what it means to live a, a, a mortal life. And even more than that, of course, there's, there's shame, there's, there's sin. But not so the life that is found in Jesus Christ. As, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the immortal life that is found in Christ will be characterized by glory, not shame. By power, not weakness. By, by the imperishable and the incorruptible. And though we don't know exactly what we will be like, what we do know is that we will be like him, Jesus, the firstborn from among the dead. This is the effect of the atonement. It actually saves us. Jesus did it all. He saves us from God's wrath. And he also saves us to eternal life. So, so, brothers, are you living with that life in view? Or is your gaze distracted by the life of this world? You know, if only we could see this world for the tawdry vanity fair that it is. Do you remember going to, to the fair or the carnival as a kid? Did they do a state fair here in Michigan? Maybe you went to the state fair or there was a county fair. I grew up going to, to county fairs and state fairs. Loved them. I remember going as a kid, the Broadway, all the different things going on. Um, this is, the, I, I grew up kind of before the, the rise of the, the big flashy amusement parks, right? Though we did eventually go to those. Um, but, the, but the fair was a big deal. I loved it. It was kind of magical and amazing. Now think about taking your kids to that same affair, that same fair as an adult, right? Same thing, different eyes. Now I see, oh, there's kind of a seedy character to the fair sometimes. There's an unsavoriness to parts of it. There's a lot of deception going on at the carnival. Now there is much that is genuinely beautiful and sublime about this world. But in comparison to the life to come, we need to see this world as it is, through adult eyes, not kids' eyes. Now, given what Christ has accomplished, rescuing us from God's wrath, giving us eternal life, this is why we make such a big deal about Jesus. This is why we should be making a big deal about him 
every single Sunday in our churches. I remember uh, my, my father-in-law who passed away a few years ago. I remember my father-in-law once explaining to me why he'd stopped going to church. Uh, he was not a believer, but he did go to church for much of his life. But, it, but eventually he stopped. He just stopped going. And it was a, a bit of an embarrassment to him that his daughter had married a pastor. But he, 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 he eventually got over it. But anyway, so we were talking one day about why he stopped going to church. And he basically, you know, explained to me that, that he figured that preachers, preachers only have about 30 sermons. That they just kept repeating over and over and over again. And after a while, he'd heard them all. And so he didn't see any reason to go anymore. Now, we had a really interesting conversation. But, but what I was thinking to myself was, oh, no, no, Blake, it's worse than you think. We only have one sermon. I got one sermon, and it's all about Jesus. Every single week, I'm talking about Jesus again. Jesus didn't come to be our role model, so let's not preach role model sermons. Jesus didn't come to inspire us, so let's not, let's, let's not give the, those sort of um, inspirational talks that will pack out the churches. Jesus didn't die as our example. No, Jesus came to accomplish salvation from God's wrath and through his death, secure eternal life for sinners like you and me. That's what we want to preach. This is why we preach. This is why we send our young people to the ends of the earth in missions. This is why we hold our mortal lives cheap in comparison with the riches of seeing Christ glorified through the salvation of those who otherwise would not hear the message. This is why we're careful about what we do in our church's life. You know, as a church, we want to be faithful to the only work that Christ has given us. There are a lot of good things we can do, and we should do a lot of good things, but we want to be careful, right? The world will applaud us if we would spend ourselves on, on, on the issues and things that they value. The world might even fund us, give us their money, if we would commit our resources to the work that the world deems worthy. And there is some good work out there to be done. And, and Christians in your churches should be involved in it. But this we know. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. No one else is going to preach this message if we don't. They'll happily involve us in their projects. But if we ever abandon our proper work, no one else will take it up. It's not that we don't care about the things that the world cares about. It is that like our self-giving, self-sacrificing God, we love the world finally not the way it wants to be loved, but the way it needs to be loved through the appeal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do so confidently because we know that this message brings salvation. Which brings us then to the final thing that we learn from these verses We've seen the need, the nature, the motivation, the effect of the atonement. All that's left to consider is our response. So look there in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The substitutionary death of Christ on the cross stands as this sharp division in the history of this world and in each of our lives. There's no neutral place to stand in relation to God and the cross. Jesus could not be more clear on this point. Like the bronze serpent that was set up as a standard and sign in the middle of the camp, so the cross stands before us today. And it must stand clearly in our churches and in our preaching. It is not an insurance policy that you can turn to when and if you desire you need it. It's not a ticket that gets you to heaven that once you put in your pocket, you can go on your way. It is a declaration that you are already condemned under the wrath of God for your rebellion and sin. You can look away from the cross. 
You can refuse to acknowledge the truth about your own heart. You can continue to plead the merits of your own so-called good life. You can continue to convince yourself that believing in God is folly, that the dead don't rise, that there will never be a final accounting. These are the thoughts that go through the minds of our non-Christian neighbors and friends and family members. We need to be clear. We need to be clear that if people continue in that folly, if people refuse to believe in the name of God's one and only Son, if they refuse to believe that He is who He said He is, and that He did what He came to do, then they will perish. Perish in rebellion. Just as surely as the Israelites did in the desert. Brothers, brothers, our call it, it, as men, as pastors, as elders, is to call people to look to Jesus. To believe that the death that he died, he died for you. To, to rest in the knowledge that his death actually satisfied the penalty that we've all earned. That, that it doesn't matter how bad you've been. How great your sin is. Jesus says, whoever believes will not perish. Whoever believes is not condemned. We need to preach a gospel that declares clearly that Christ accomplished salvation. He did it all. We don't add anything, not even our faith. That he did it for whoever will turn away from the rebellion and instead put their faith in the God whose love is measured not by our feelings, but by his actions. Christ died for his people. He, he died for the elect. He died effectively for the church. But we don't want to let people get caught up in that. We, we, we want to call people to prove that you are one of those that he died for. Prove that you are part of his effective work by putting your faith in a God whose love is measured by the span of a wooden beam and nail-pierced hands. Let's pray.